Hello and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder, our expectations have become greater, and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate, and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Will Woodham's my hero and the first ever busyness podcast guest. CEO of Fitstairs joins me to chat about his career, why everyone in business is winging it, and why presenting a more realistic viewpoint of what it's like to run a business is paramount. Will chatted to me about our new obsession with young entrepreneurs and why you shouldn't be running a million dollar company at 25, you should be worried about getting laid. Will shared with me why if you're good at your job, you should be able to take a call on a jet ski why confidence and preparation is the key to mitigating feeling like a fraud, smoke and mirrors in business, and building the plane as it flies. Will advises that we should adapt, keep our businesses agile, and keep the purse strings tight, and just get the fuck on with it. I loved chatting to Will about his experiences, call-out culture, the media agenda, and how to navigate running a modern business. His energy is infectious and his attitude is incredibly refreshing. I hope you become as much of a fan of Will as I am. Thank you for joining me on what is set to be um, a landmark episode in probably quite a successful podcast series. Um, I wanted to start this podcast because... I'm very fortunate, as you know, to be connected with some very interesting people across a whole different series of businesses. And um, there has become a bit of an industry standard that being busy is a mark of success and everyone's very busy in business. And I'm interested to know what people are actually doing. So I know that you have very kindly um, given to me a chunk of your time. So I'm interested in what you have been busy doing today. (laughs) I've been busy doing absolutely nothing. Oh, great. Okay, well, I mean, thank you for honesty, because that kind of commanded responses. Um, I, did, I, did a, I did like an eight-way conference call from the Bath, 
And so I was in, so I couldn't, and I was terrified the video was going to turn on. And I kept wanting to say stuff, but I knew there'd be a sort of ambient splish splash. So I had, to, I was, I was like a sort of fevered thumb presser of the mute. So I was like pressing mute before I'd finished sentences so people couldn't hear uh, bath sounds. Um, Were you just so busy that you had to combine no, calling with, with no. cleanliness or? No, I mean, I just hadn't got my timing right. And then I suddenly realised, but what's the fucking point of getting out of the bath? Uh, in my head, you were wearing a suit in the bath. Is that accurate? What's it called? A bath duck called Squidgy Toy. He was covering my nevers. I didn't have a suit. So, so, okay. So large duck is what we're... <laughs> it's quite... It was darkly. And so... <laughs> So I'm interested as a jumping off point to understand, was this the kind of large sort of business dilemma that you always wanted to overcome during your 20 odd years of experience? What's the dilemma? Well, sort of like whether it's appropriate to, I'm assuming the call wasn't important. It was very, it was very important. But I, I think, I think that isn't there a lesson in life that you should be kind of always prepared for calls? I think they probably teach you to prepare. Is that is it be oh, prepare to fail if you don't prepare to do more but i think right i think if you're running a company you have to be um not uh, you know as as we both do uh no but if you're running a company you kind of need to be thrown in on a on a cab out of an air i mean the, the old sort of adage of running a company being very successful is that you get put on conference calls like and you join them halfway through whilst you're in a cab coming off, you know, from Heathrow or in New York or something, and you can hear, like, Wah! and like, hey, get out of my way! And it's sort of, yeah. it used to be a kind of um, badge of You want of a bit honor. of theatre. A bit of theatre, badge of honour. If you're good at your job, you can kind of take that call on a jet ski, and that means you can get some jet ski time into the day. So I kind of, I've changed my view of, of like, preparedness for calls. You should just be prepared for them all the time, and you should have a, a vague grasp of what people are talking about, or at least be able to have the you know the confidence to say i have no idea what this call is about please can someone give me a concise 90 seconds on what's going on i think everyone thinks they're a fraud and i think um you the actual people who aren't frauds are the people at the beginning of meetings who say can someone fill me in because i haven't got a clue what's going on right so you think that there's an element of reality uh running a business that there's a lot of stuff on the fly and that the reality is is that you've got to be capable of picking it up and getting on with it and not feeling this pressure to show up perfect and complete when actually you know you probably haven't read the document because you were you know having a bath nobody's read the document i mean i worry Has about written people... the document <laughs> yeah there's always i mean that's people's job to write the document i think you'll find in most companies no one's read the document it's quite a nice dynamic isn't it when you're on a call and you know someone hasn't read the document but you think that there might be a little space where you can you can use that to your advantage to sort of just increase blood pressure i think it's quite a nice quite a nice touch but I think if you're like, I think if you're super good at your job or slick, you can ride that out. You can like, right. I haven't read the document, but I still know more than the person who wrote it. Mm. Well, that's so so interesting point, I guess, about, we, you mentioned briefly about imposter and I guess imposter syndrome is a very trendy thing in terms of being on the agenda, particularly for young entrepreneurs. Um, the concept uh, for anyone who might not know is that you essentially believe that you're going to be found out and that you you ought not to be in the position that you're in. And it's very common with people who accelerate through their career quickly and or get jobs that they sort of feel are too good to be true. In the last 10 years, that acceleration is because of tech, is, is because of tech, is bananas. You have woefully 
inadequate senior leaders of tech businesses and startups. So you but, think they should feel imposter syndrome? No, but, then, but the point is they came up with the idea. The brilliant thing about like young tech invigorating people is they know the end point. They just have to hire a lot of people to get them from A to B. But ultimately, they're probably lacking and they're always on the spectrum and they're always lacking in like management skills. And they're always like just don't know how to run businesses. And so that's they are imposters, but they're allowed to be. I think that's the deal. They're allowed to be imposters because it's their idea and their genius. <laughs> right. But you see, I, I think I disagree with you on that, though, because I think I think that a lot of I think conflict and debate is healthy, as you know, well, but I, you know, for, for me, I've worked with some really interesting brands where the founder has grown the business to a certain point, which may well be Series A. And they have then said, look, actually, I need a professional CEO to run this and grow it because my skill, you know, my background is marketing or I'm the ideas guy. And I wonder if you think there's a lot of pride from founders that they ought to be in that role all the way through. There's a di- I come from, I've been in big corporate companies and people think when you're offloading it, it's like I think of Eric Schmidt, doesn't he? Didn't he run Google? And he was like, this isn't, he's like an old school business dude. And, you know, he's right. white and old <laughs> and wears suits. And I kind of, and everyone was like, oh, but actually what he it's you kind of unfortunately you think it's like the accountants have arrived the cost cutting has arrived all the bean bags and free meals are going to get cancelled it's just not true i think um often that you bring in people that have been there and done that and i hate to say it but experience is like really good and so for these young founders the sooner you get someone, and obviously there's lots of shysters out there who say, who've been sitting in big corporations actually doing nothing. You've seen people make the transition from agency to brand and, and vice versa. And there's, yep. a, there's a lot of people that um, simply can't move at a hard, fast pace, you know, so yep. it, it just wouldn't work. Uh, and I think consultants often get hired in by these, these tech companies. They're like, oh my God, he's done an ama- amazing job for McKinsey or, you know, whoever. Mm. Consultants can't run businesses because they've never had to they they consult they consult they don't they're not and there's probably a there's probably a sort of naivety about the reality of how their job when they come in exists in the context of an infrastructure that is provided for them to deliver right and when you go to another business and actually have to run it it is it is a very different skill set I mean I think there's a romance and I think there's a seduction around the idea of running a business and it's become like social currency to be able to be kind of as young as you can and have as big a valuation as you can. Oh, yawn. It's a bubble. It's a bubble. Of course it's a bubble. And and you're gonna people will go and look. Like Henry Ford probably had the idea when he was like 18, but there was a lot of slog in between. Um and I don't know if that's a bad analogy. It might be a very good one. I just don't know the facts. But I think no, neither it, do I. So let's just let that hang in the air. <laughs> but the, but it's, of course, it's a, you just step back and like even if you're 18, you can look and go, "This can't continue. We can't, we can't have the world run by 22 year olds in Patagonia." And I'm 42, so perhaps I'm just chippy. But the, you know, yes, they they always end up becoming all these sort of young free-spirited people always end up becoming really right-wing and like disillusioned and weird and and so it's like it's like it isn't healthy running a business at 22 i know you did um but it's you know there's a lot of fun to be having in the world and some there's some life experiences and worrying worrying at 25 about your management structure is you should be worried about whether you're getting laid sure if you're um 
running a billion dollar company at 25, you know, you're probably... You're going to be burnt out by 35. No one... Yeah, but you... <laughs> apart from Randolph Hearst or someone, no one has done it. No one has like done niche it. Re- niche reference. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting, though, because when I started in officially in 2012... When you were 12. When I was, when I was an infant, um, which I look back now, I must say, and I'm like, sorry, who paid me to do stuff? Like, I meet 22-year-olds now, and I'm like you are an infant and like I'm I feel upset that you're like trying to get a job so I don't know how how that happened but I was obviously incredibly compelling and um charming but um you also didn't give a shit and that's that's what people were buying people were buying enthusiasm and and ball busting and you didn't care and you hadn't been you didn't have the weight of the world on your shoulders I'm guessing right and I think I've always thought it's quite interesting when you meet people who are 35 who have a mortgage and kids and a wife and they're starting a business that's a much scarier jump than being 22 and being like fuck it I'll be 24 and employable and I think that you know I guess it's kind of in conflict with what you just said about like being in your mid-20s and running a business but in a way like having a go at that time where you have very few commitments and um you know scary life uh dreams like mortgages is is sort of um the best time to do it are you are you texting? No, I'm te- I'm I'm trying. I was just looking for the name of the lady who ran Theranos. You know the the medical testing thing. Oh, Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, Theranos. I mean, like she. When you talked about all Obsessed. of those pressures just now, I immediately thought of her. The most awful, fraudulent. I think that's a really interesting example because I'm obsessed with her. Firstly, so I mean, I. I'm very excited about the upcoming film with Jennifer Lawrence playing her. I've listened to the podcast. I read the book. I feel like um, I feel connected to her deeply. But what was so interesting about that was that I, I, I kind of almost believe it's a bit of a like fire Island situation where I actually think that Elizabeth Holmes thought that she could make it work. I think that she, I don't think she was reckless in the same way that someone like Adam Newman from WeWork was. Sure. Like he was like, He's just greedy. He's just greedy. He's just greedy and he wanted like a clothing deal and he you bought like a surfing company and it was the whole thing was a disaster and he was given way too much money and it was out of control. But with Elizabeth Holmes, I think I do almost get a sense that she genuinely thought she could actually make it work. Obviously, she was deluded. But but interestingly, there were so many, including people like Henry Kissinger, which is like... Also- <laughs> George so Schultz, many- George Schultz, who died last week, who's an amazing man. He was the guy whose his grandson worked for her. But, you know, the, the, the American people and the investors wanted her to be successful because they wanted a woman in Silicon in Palo Alto to come out and be like... I'm wearing a polo neck, and that's good enough to be referred to. Um, <laughs> Do you know what? Do you know what? I think it's re- when I watched the documentary. I tell you what really hit me was how I thought she was deeply, deeply unimpressive. And what we've done is set a bar for our tech leaders so low because because they are so uninspiring to mm. you know our leaders of old. And I could be falling into kind of a Davos trap of people. Are you talking about? Are you talking about Churchill? Is that where you're going to be? No, no. <laughs> not leader. No, I meant like business leaders of old. Sure. And and even Steve Jobs, I like, could get on the stage and talk to people. I found her deeply unimpressive. And so just to be clear about young people owning businesses, going back three points, like if you want to go and s- start a small business, you know, and grow it and have a team of 10, you know, by within three or four years, like that's amazing experience. And sometimes it fails and sometimes it works. But like having a team of a thousand on Silicon roundabout at the age of 25 for me is where I have a bit of a that that's kind of where I had a bit of an issue 
I don't really believe in the idea of unicorns. I think it's kind of a fantasy and I think it's very unhealthy. There's about <laughs> I, I love that. Unicorns. I don't believe in unicorns. I mean, you just right, said it. <laughs> but I'm just saying, right, they're not real. You know, that's why they're called that. It's sort of, there's a lot of businesses that make between like a million and a hundred million that are incredibly smart, interesting businesses that are set up very well with very dynamic people and not everything has to be, yeah, and I think, you know, what most recently a contemporary example is obviously Whitney from Bumble ringing the bell at 31 years old with a kid on her arm. And you think, I, I'm not really interested about like whether she has a rich husband or whether she did or didn't deserve it because I don't really care. She is 100%, I think, an incredible representation of what is achievable and possible. However, she's also like the only person who's done it, which would suggest it's quite hard to do. Well, the You've got to think about the business, the investment business model. So that investment business model is we can afford for, for nine out of 10 of these businesses to fail because the, the bumble will make us so much money. And like transport that concept onto to, to restaurants. I mean, they would say restaurants will fail, but like who has a business strategy that under the under the bonnet is nine of these will fail, but one will come to the top. Are you talking specifically about invest, investment banks and p- private equity investment? Horovitz and all those, you know, and you're talking about rounds of funding and all of this. And it's just like, I'm just going to keep pumping money into it until it sinks. Young people are in a cycle of seeing business in the wrong way. The business in the right way is you have a really good product and technology now will give your product the opportunity to be seen by millions of people. In my sector, bookmaking, you know, 15 years ago, if you wanted to go to bookmakers, you had to go to a grotty shop on a high street. And then the internet arrived, turbocharged the business into a 15 billion pound business just in the UK. It's going to be a 100 billion pound business in the US in the next two years. So in fact, all of this tech has been wonderful for taking old fashioned businesses to the next level. Nowadays, you can literally make something in your kitchen and sell it on Etsy. But people, young people are thinking about, am I going to get my second round of investment? Am I going to do this? Can I break this? Can, you know, I'm like, just make a product that everyone wants and then market it well. Right. But so, I mean, in, in many ways, what you're saying is that there's never been a better time to launch a business because the barrier to entry is so low. It's awesome. People are giving, and it's also money's cheap. So rather than thinking about rounds of funding, I'm like, just get a million quid at the beginning, not a million quid, but get an amount of money at the beginning that will cover your costs, but keep the business tight and agile and adapt. And when you see the opportunity, then go for it. You know, I think there's a really interesting um, idea around the reduction of barriers to entry for businesses so that they can get started. And I totally agree with you. I think, you know, we've become everyone's kind of 10 steps ahead. I think there's a complete misunderstanding about the reality of the difference between creating a product for a small business and then creating a business for scale to sell. You know, when you think about these huge brands like Glossier and Away and Bumble, you know, they are structured from day one on a kind of exit model that requires, you know, I think um, Glossier is on like their series D or something, you know, it's a completely different beast and it requires a very different strategy and thought process. And actually a lot of those brands aren't necessarily product-led. They're heavily mission-led. You know, Bumble has been operating above the product vertical for a long time. They have a huge guerrilla marketing team. And actually, they're taking what is a very simplistic 
tech, which is really tech as a facilitator rather than rather yeah. than an innovator, and amplifying that with, as you say, a kind of dusty experience with people, which in that in that instance was dating, and um, leaning on consumer behaviors, but actually really just telling people that that's the way that social intercourse would be undertaken and doing it better than other people repeatedly over time. And I think, you know, you. I sometimes get emails from startup dating apps and you just sort of think, I mean, you ain't getting anywhere near, you know, it's sort of like fucking get, get a different job, pick something yeah. else. <laughs> Similarly with Uber, right? Like you don't start um, a, a cab company on a shoestring now. It's sort of no point, but you know, there are obviously predictive markets where we can consider growth. Like we've seen it with a lot of dusty products. We've seen it particularly with, tea and chocolate and household products and things that were quite unsexy like paint and other things like that that are now using brand to really become become a lot more relevant but I'm interested in um you mentioned earlier that you think people see businesses in the wrong way is that because you think the lens of social media particularly has encouraged people to see a very disproportionate idea about what running a business is and what that actually entails and what it gives you? I think the media are, are somewhat to blame. I think there's a culture from like Wired and Business Insider, which we all get very excited about. And they talk about business in a very, and US TV, obviously you have like MSNBC and all this. They talk about business as an entertainment in a sense. And, and things like Davos and um and uh south by southwest and even burning man you know they kind of blow this up even more and i think what we saw with gamestop and elon musk is a huge i mean americans have always bought shares and the british less so but still engaged with it but but they've been a kind of nest egg concept here it's not been the cut and thrust of kind of trading from your like as a as a home consumer or retail trader so people are more engaged with it and i think whereas sunday times business section used to be oh we're going to talk to a FTSE 100 ceo about their you know vision for the business in five years now it's like who's selling who's who's buying what's going on who's got this round of funding what's so they've kind of turned business into an entertainment sport which is kind of great because business people were seen as the opposite of rock and roll so they've done a great job at raising the profile of business leaders but what they've also done is create an assumption that that's how business works it's you know it's it's a long business is a long-term project you can't be a millionaire in a year unless you want to do it fraudulently when you talk about like business leaders and um you know there's a lot of power in Elon Musk, I mean, obviously he was famously removed from the board of Tesla for um, tweeting something about the share price um, changing. There's a lot of scrutiny, particularly the, the big tech giants in the Jack Dorsey, Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, et cetera, are, um, ha- happen to all be men. But I'm sure Whitney from Bumble will probably join that, that list um, shortly. Do you think that we are disproportionately breeding a culture this sort of call out culture idea with CEOs and business leaders who are now so famous, infamous. I mean, 10 years ago, when I started, there were no um, business founders and leaders. Well, it wasn't really a thing in terms of like the media agenda, the column inches, all the it kept a very low pro- big CEOs yeah. kept a very low profile. And then there was there, there was a cool phase where everyone was like, I used to work in the city and now I've started a flower brand. And it was like, right, okay. And then everyone sort of did that. And then if you were sort of, if you'd recently had a child that was quite interesting for some time being like a young parent doing something 
And it's sort of, and obviously, you know, the the value of it decreases the number of it's gone up. So everyone's got a business story about moving industries or quitting the rat race or being brokenhearted or whatever. Do you My think my daughter that, was a um, what's a celiac, and I just thought I could make some bread. And then a massive corporation comes and just takes your business away. Yeah. How um, I made two million pounds out of my daughter's celiac. Yeah, yeah. My, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, that's no, really unfair. I mean, that but that's, is, that's a good place for a business to come from. So I shouldn't... That is also a client I would represent. So, um, I do. I, I, that was actually my handiwork. But no, I'm interested in the idea of, you know... I, I, I don't want to sound right on. To answer, to answer your question, I don't want to sound right on. And I am an overweight, white, 42-year-old male. I'm starting to sound... Congratulations. But overweight white males in their 40s have now been replaced by overweight white males in their 40s. It's the same but different. It's kind of like we're still buying the same bullshit. You know, there's the same people running businesses. They're just now wearing Patagonia fleeces as opposed to travel race suits. And they're still, and they talk the talk and they'll hire a senior woman and they'll do that, but they don't do it. They're actually fundamentally conservative. Whatever they might say, they're fundamentally conservative. But it's the same old people doing the same old things. It's just they're wearing slightly different clothes, I, I kind of feel like. And, uh, you know. Do you think in, in an industry, in industries in which... And I'm, one of them. I'm one of them, so don't... I, well, I, yeah, I mean, but, but in, in, if you think about businesses that have utilised PR, marketing, visibility, social media, and had, you know, the CEO has been a very important part of a lot of these brand journeys, like Emily Weiss. Glossier and um, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Goop, except, you know, wh- whoever yeah. they are, the sort of key founder or CEO or whatever um, is, and you see it with a lot of... Who's the CEO of Coca-Cola? Is this a trick question? It's not a trick question. No one, I don't, no, no one knows. No, yeah, well, I mean, valid. But, but the point, the question I have for you is, with those businesses that have clearly been founder managed and where the founder has been a really important reason and part of raising money and a really compelling part of the story yeah. do you think that they should be as accessible and as um do you think that people should be calling them out for behavior and do you think that that's a good thing to have those people in positions of power or do you agree more with the coca-cola kind of faceless brand piece it's a good question i it's i suppose your I really like a guy called Mark Ritson, who's a professor of marketing based in Tasmania or something. And all my team go on his mini MBA. And he, he calls he calls out bullshit in marketing quite um, quite a lot. And he made a point about Tesla. He said he said Tesla is like now being valued as the most you know profitable company in the world. Tesla doesn't TV advertise, doesn't use conventional marketing methods. And and he said the big Elon Musk advocates or disciples say it doesn't need to market because Elon Musk does it for it. He's so he sticks his head so far above the parapet. The guy is genuinely trying to get into space, same as every other psychotic CEO or former CEO. Um, Bezos and um, Branson being the most obvious ones. It's like how bigger can your ego get? Let's go to Mars. And um, and so they argue that Elon Musk's celebrity is driving Tesla sales. Now, anyone who studied marketing for more than 30 seconds will tell you that is going to crash and burn, not the ship going to Mars, um, as a concept. And what brands like Porsche have been doing have slowly built efficacy in their 
electric product. And when it comes to the forecourt in three years' time and you're standing there and you're looking at a Tesla or a Porsche, nine out of ten people are going to go Porsche and the, because no one's going to go, oh, Elon Musk has done another tweet. I must buy a Tesla. Because the actual product efficacy and the product history and the brand love will all bubble to the top and Tesla ain't got none. And Porsche has got it in bucket loads. It's a lot of the kind of old-fashioned long-term marketing strategy and brand strategy and, most importantly, product efficacy that kind of gets washed away when you've got Britney ringing the bell. And so... And yes, of course, she's she's come she's come from her competitor and eaten their lunch because they are slow. I, it comes back to for me, it's always like fever tree and Schweppes. But in the UK, by the time Schweppes realised their lunch was being eaten by fever tree because they were so slow and fat and arrogant, by the time it happened, it was too late for Schweppes, and they threw money. I remember Schweppes were running like double page print adverts, like. No one opens a magazine and goes, oh, look, there's a Schweppes advert. I must go buy some tonic. Um, so, uh, but they just they were just like desperately scrabbling to regain market share. And I th- I'm not sure what it is. Definitely by value, Fever Tree are bigger. And so the fault lies. So one, Fever Tree are doing an amazing job and they're young and they're a great product and they just bang the product message and their marketing is really strong. But if, if, if Schweppes had done what they were meant to do as a business, and keep a, not keep an eye on their competition, but build the brand and build the brand. If LVMH owned Schweppes, none of this would have happened because LVMH would have made Schweppes like Fever Tree. So, okay, I'm interested. One, you said Britney instead of Whitney. I'm interested oh, in I'm your sorry. opinions of the free Britney movement because it's very <laughs> contemporary. And then we can go much that. But, <laughs> I've um, met Whitney. No. My wife nearly became marketing manager of Bumble in the UK. They, she went out with... Whitney and got drunk. Uh, She got too drunk and she didn't get hired. So that wouldn't have, I don't think that would have mean, actually that would have meant we'd be very wealthy now. Anyway, let's move on. Well, we can lament that. Um, but you you talked about, um, so obviously I didn't really do a skim of your CV. Um, obviously no introduction was necessary, but you you did work at um, LVMH for a period of time. You were also CMO at French Connection. You were a board member at um, Mission, which is a very successful, I mean, do, do you, is it marketing agency, PR agency experience? We put, um, we put brands in culture. Fine. So that's a load of shit that you wrote when you were there. And then obviously now CEO Fit says, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned briefly in your um, takedown of, uh, of Schweppes that uh, oh, sorry, Schweppes. Yeah. lack of innovation, because they're definitely listening, a lack of innovation. Do you think that these companies that have been quite, that have been successful and perhaps worked in a structure that has provided profits for them, that they are slow on the uptake they leave it too long and then they end up buying you know they end up buying the competitor that's eating their lunch so okay let's talk about french connection because interesting challenge with french connection possibly identifiable from someone who didn't have the experience that you had as to some of the limitations of the brand you were there 2010 to 2012 tell me did you when you went in were you tasked was it was it a poison chalice did you feel like you had kind of the reverse i think um the business wasn't doing well that we were coming we're still trying to wag the tail of fc uk as a marketing concept, which was 10 to 15 years old. 
and it was like dead. And you just needed to plug. Oh God, I sound like a wanker, but you needed to plug into moments um, that were relevant then. And at the time, there was a there was street style had become a thing. And this wasn't this was before Instagram, so it was like on blogs. And there was a, a, a two big street style photographers called the Sartorialist, and he was actually dating a woman called Garrel's Door, and they were kind of capturing the zeitgeist of people standing outside fashion shows, not inside fashion shows. And, and immediately I said, that's what we need to deliver. But the, but it was an exciting journey. And I think, I think I said last week that I, I knew where to get to, which is a bit like those kind of weird founders of tech companies. They know, they know where to get to. They just don't know how to get there. If that makes sense. But is that a, is that a very common thing in all business? Is it like, you know, you've got to kind of set long-term goals are, are fine, but, we all know that. It isn't common. No one does it. <laughs> That's the problem. Like Coca Cola does it. I know we're sounding like I'm. I'm kind of you sounding like a really old car. No, but I just like those. These are companies that like. There's a reason that Hellman's. It, it, he, they're not being t- overtaken by other brands. It's because Hellman's are doing the work. We can't see it. It's the. It's the feet under the bird. And Coca Cola doing that. They're doing. They know where their business will be in five years. Like COVID has been amazing for LVMH at getting people to buy their products online. I mean, nothing could have been better for them to drive online sales for a business that was absolutely anchored in retail. So what is it? It's an opportunity for them. Yeah, and there's a lot of businesses, I think, that like fast growth can actually be incredibly damaging. But if you've got the infrastructure and you're set up for it and it's just accelerating a five-year plan, you know, those are the businesses that have particularly things like at-home fitness, Peloton being a very obvious example. I know you worked with Peloton at Mission, but, yeah. you know, they've, they were so far ahead of everyone else before they touched the UK that I guess it's that concept of it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. And there is that sort of sexiness. And, and, and some luck. <laughs> Like, like, so all that, like, so your Soho House crowd, in, in, you know, they they grabbed Peloton because they the same. We did the launch of Peloton. We did the launch of J Crew. We we were quite good at mission at bringing over these hot US brands, which need to be kind of anglicized and delivered in the right way because in America, it's different. But the best possible thing that ever happened to Peloton was a pangolin fucking a bat in a wet market in Wuhan. I mean, can you talk about, I swear the guy from Peloton was there. And that's an awful thing to say because millions of people have died. But Peloton, like, can you just imagine a lockdown for that, for that business? Well, yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting. You know, the market changes and things happen and sometimes that's good and sometimes it's bad. And I, mean, I suppose what I, I suppose what I'm in, what I'm now I'm thinking about it. It's the, the, the marketing team at Peloton. They had a real, just before COVID, they had a terrible bump. There was this PR moment, which was some guy had bought a Peloton wife. His wife, he had bought a Peloton wife. <laughs> he bought his wife a Peloton. And there was a tacit implication that he should lose weight. So they were, they were, they were, um, they were fighting that battle. Then COVID happens. And I swear they doubled down on marketing like within a year, within, within a month. Now, when you talk about businesses that grow too fast, if their demand had outstripped the supply, they could have been in real trouble. Because if, if people were like waiting two months for Peloton and COVID had lifted, then we're in a real, we're in a really bad cycle. But I imagine that they're manufacturing everything. They just got it. They worked behind the scenes. Rather, we're back to the analogy of the swan with the feet under the water. They did all those bits to make sure they got Pelotons in people's homes during lockdown. That's, that's business.
that is what business is. It's a perfect storm, right? Of like marketplace responding, consumer desire. They've got the cash. They've got the infrastructure. The right person leading it. You know, to be honest, I I saw that Peloton um, thing about the guy buying his wife Peloton. You know, for Christmas, yeah. sort of saying, get your fat ass on that. And I thought that's that to me is an obvious. That's come from inside the camp. To you know, it's a yeah. very deliberate kind of. We're going to create a social media storm, which is what Do you it think is. So? Do you think they actually? Yeah, I, I did think that because it was it was so. Well, they're deliberate. clever. They're cleverer than I think they are. Then. <laughs> well, it just felt deliberate, and I and I thought you know it's kind of like when Protein World or whatever it was put those ads on the tube, being like get a bikini body, and everyone's like everybody's a bikini body, and it's like no one in the history of the world puts out a campaign of a woman looking like that now without expecting backlash so I wanted to ask you um uh I know you're pressured for time because where are you up to I'm having we're having a baby or I'm having a baby um just to clarify (laughs) not you and me no no sorry uh yeah I'm off to Chelsea and Westminster in 15 minutes to potentially have a baby but it will come in the next few days I understand Thank you for that. So yeah. you're quite busy. So don't fuck all all day, but having a child. So <laughs> it, it's going to balance swings itself and, out. Swings and roundabouts. But I wanted, I wanted to hear a bit more about how that, how you made that transition to CEO and then a little bit about whether you've had to make difficult decisions and how you reconcile whether they're right. Sure. So I think one one great benefit, and I, and I might be repeating myself somewhat, but my great benefit of working in an agency is you you write a plan for your client and i think you know this better than anyone that the client just doesn't buy the plan they buy bits of it and it's like having a starter and a pudding (laughs) you're kind of missing the point it's a plan and and it's sort of um so i'd written you know with the strategist at mission because every pr company has strategists um aka the latest employee that isn't crying in the corner so so what we used to do is like you'd work on a pitch you know i mean you know this you work on a pitch for like maybe three weeks or two weeks and there's a lot of like people giving putting slides in and you know it's a nightmare oh that press person do the press bit you do that strategists do that but the top the first page of a pitch is is a plan it's like this is the date we start this is the date that your business starts making money or launch or whatever your objective is or the KPI, whatever. And I've done a million of these bloody things. And you have a sort of bubbling under an idea of what brands should do. Like Peloton, you know what the commercial objective of Peloton is, is, you know, it's like, can we sell this amount of units? But ultimately, it's to own the home fitness space. You know, that's in the UK. And and then just have new products roll off that and grow brand allegiance, blah, blah, blah. And so that's the plan. How do you get the plan? Here's the ABC. And when I arrived at Fitstairs, like literally two and a half hours plan done. And then it takes two and a half to three years to deliver. Because the first year is fix all the shit. Uh, second year is start moving in the right direction and get rid of the people that aren't on the train and get people onto the train that should be there. And I mean, you can't even really think about You shouldn't really be thinking about hiring and firing in year one because it's just too much. <laughs> and, and and then year three, either you start seeing the fruits of your labor and the business starts moving in the right direction and you can really start planning further ahead. And, uh, and you know, from, from six months in, we had a five-year financial plan. You know, that's a, you know, as every business should and it's rolling and it changes. And But this is how much money we should be making and this is how we're going to do it. 
and and we are bang on our five-year plan i mean we're ahead of it this year but we'll get back on it next year and and it's always good to land on it because it looks like your plan is a plan um but 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 it's either and after two and a half years the plan is working financially or it isn't working and you're not right for the job and i think that's that's a big gamble for a founder to take though right like high if the plan is good so to answer your question if the plan is good it's not that difficult making decisions sometimes you sometimes you need to do quick fast things to make money to hit the month that's how businesses work but ultimately if your plan is solid and you stick to it obviously plans adapt and change but if you relatively stick to where you're heading you should do, i mean it, it should make decision making easier what because you've just like it either falls in inside or outside of that that trajectory it focuses your focuses your mind to staying on the trajectory you're not stopping at you're not stopping at wild bean cafes constantly you are heading to wales on the m4 and and you if you can refuel whilst driving do it but it's unlikely <laughs> That's a confusing metaphor, but I think really confusing. Uh, yeah, thank you. But so, so you've and and presumably, you know, you're a lot. You're a luxury bookmakers. It's obviously a very different proposition to um, going into a high street bookies, and it's obviously a very different consumer too. Have you found it easy to adapt during COVID? Have you found it a good, ch- an interesting challenge? You decided to open a physical club which i'm assuming was yeah. um you can't be a you can't be a luxury business without putting your customer first so that's the deal like if you're really discount the assumption is you're not going to be treated particularly well as a customer but you're going to benefit with with a cheaper deal do you know what i mean so that that's that's the deal you make and so if you've got insane customer service which we do what we what we call you know our tech is ux user experience and our our customer interface with the customers is called cx which sounds a bit boring and geeky but customer experience is if it's absolute cornerstone of your business which it should be in a premium business then you are even if you've got nothing to sell you should still be communicating with your customer so you should still have open channels of communication with your customer even with covid so what we found was as soon as sport resumed in june people were calling us to place bets or texting us they weren't using the app they wanted human interaction they wanted to speak to a nice person on the phone who picked up after one ring so all of that has been really helpful uh, having that b- baked into the business has been uh saved our business post covid or p- through covid and I'm conscious of time because I know that you've got to go and, um, you know, be busy. But you've always been quite straight talking. The entirety of the, the um, time that I've known you, you've always been, um, I mean, at times hurtful and rude, but also, you know, direct and helpful. And I guess I was interested in what your advice would be to people who are looking to start businesses, but sort of are getting a bit caught up in the massive chasm between actual success and perceived success because I think you know for a lot of people being seen on social media getting a piece of coverage in a magazine that someone's heard of being busy has become a bit of a mark of certainly status but also success and as you've spoken to in the last hour the reality is is that it's sort of the other stuff that's going on that you're not shouting about and it's the grit and the graft and the stuff that people don't see that is probably actually laying the foundations for, for that sort of success. Do you have any words of wisdom or learnings or anything that you would sort of um, say to someone who is sort of 
fantastically busy but not really doing anything yeah um yeah i've got lots to say <laughs> um I I think I think the two I think we've discussed this with your business actually but um one don't be shit it's really tough to be amazing but just be sure that you're not shit <laughs> and then two remember that people don't care or don't give a shit there's a lot of shit going around here people people are really busy so uh, you, you're saying but I've been in I've been interviewed in the financial times and I'm doing this and I'm doing that why isn't everyone aware of me because they've got their own shit going on so just be laser guided at what you want to do to move the business forward and 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 i think you and i've discussed this like only do only talk to people when you've got something to tell them i think is really the adage of all of this and I, particularly with my, our pr backgrounds the amount of clients who go this month we really want to push this and you've just got to say you've got to understand as a brand owner no one cares so don't waste people's time telling them stuff they don't want to hear and that's i guess the tension between kind of integrity and money making an agency is like people take on certain things to that, that perhaps they're flogging a bit of a dead horse and that's why pr particularly as these sort of agency ugly sister gets a bad rep because people aren't always honest about the reality of of the fact that if someone's got nothing to talk about you're just screaming into an echo chamber of terrible business decisions <laughs> yeah you know it's like when people go i want to be in the ft and then i've raised 10 quid and you think yeah right, well if you open it it's sort of glaxo smith klein um but the, po the point is why if you've raised more than 10 quid if you've raised a million quid why have you raised a million quid what are the specific things that have led to it it's not because your uncle owns or auntie owns an investment you know what is it what, what, what's the magic that's making people invest in you that's what the ft wants to know about and that's what people want to know about so you're saying don't be shit and assume no one gives a fuck because they're all busy too <laughs> exactly and then and then when you move your business forward you're only moving it in the right direction because you're only making stuff that people want or doing things that people like, and then people want to hear about them. And then your PR and marketing and talk and product sells itself. Because direction is more important than speed, isn't it, Will? I think it is, but if you're going fast in the right direction, it's quite good as well. Yeah, that's true. I appreciate your time and your thoughts, all very interesting, um, and good luck this afternoon. Thank you. I hope everything goes without a hitch, and I will speak to you very soon. Lovely chatting. Bye.